grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I bring you the words this morning from Pastor Beck. I knew you'd have a hard time hearing him all the way from Seaview, so we'll give them to you locally. The parable of the unjust judge can be a troubling text for many. The ESV adds the heading, The Persistent Widow, which helps to relieve some of the tension. After all, we can and should identify with this woman. But the unjust judge. Jesus makes a direct comparison between this hard-hearted, self-absorbed jurist and God the Father. It sets our sensibilities on edge. In what way is this man like God? Some of the tension is relieved when we place the parable in the context of Luke's gospel. After the incident with the ten lepers, last week's gospel reading, the remainder of chapter 17 recounts Jesus' foretelling of his second coming in glory and power. He draws parallels to the days of Noah, reminds us of Lot's wife who perished in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, We hear the enigmatic description of two in one bed and two grinding where one is taken and the others left. The discourse absolutely forbids all end times calculations, whether by the rabbis or those that might arise among the disciples. Into the tension that Jesus creates, he speaks this parable, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So the purpose of this parable is to discuss prayer, and we begin by considering some of the reasons that people do not have a heart for prayer. The simplest and most obvious reason for not praying is a lack of faith, or at best, a very weak faith. Jesus alludes to this in the somewhat difficult closing line. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on earth? Notice the clear reference to the end times, to the end times discourse that precedes the parable. What is the faith that Jesus refers to? Faith that prays like this widow incessantly, relentlessly. Her petitions grind down the resistance of the judge who finally relents so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This is a one-to-one correspondence between faith and prayer. When our faith is strong, our prayers boldly approach the heavenly throne in confidence that they will be heard. When our, father is, when our faith is weak, the voice of prayer declines. It grows softer and softer. It hesitates. It finds excuses not to pray. Its voice drops to a whisper and then is silenced altogether. Therefore, you must truly be a Christian in order to pray. At the heart of the parable, we find the great reversal that is the Christian faith. You and I are the poor widow, continually pleading that the judge give me justice against my adversary. The real irony of the text is that word justice We hear, give me what is right. 
give me what I deserve that my adversary has taken away from me. But before God, justice is the last thing we need or could possibly endure. Justice for my sin is death. Romans 6, and that sense, is reflected in the language of the parable. The word justice in the king's English is avenge, to exact retribution or punishment, to inflict appropriate penalty for wrong done. God knows this, so he sent his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, so that on his sinless son, God might put the vengeance, the retribution for sin, the justice we deserved. That the wages of sin, which is death, might be exacted from him. There on the cross, that price was paid down to the last drop of his blood. And in doing so, the righteousness, the righteousness of the Son, the righteousness of Jesus, was placed on you. You are redeemed. Give me justice against my adversary. We don't truly understand the magnitude of that demand until we taste again, this morning, the body given and the blood shed. Only the Christian can pray this bloody prayer. But there are other impediments to prayer, impediments that can attack the redeemed as well. We're too busy. We don't have time. I'm reminded of another of Jesus' parables, the parable of the sower and the third group of seeds, those that fell among thorns. Jesus explains, and as for what fell among the thorns, there they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fault does not their fruit does not mature. That's from Luke eight fourteen. In our twenty four seven, three hundred and sixty five day always on world, we can hardly find the time to turn around, let alone pray. We are more than a generation. We are an age. Away from, we are an age away from the days of Walter Cronkite. You remember how the evening news ended? And that's the way it was. And then the date. It no longer was. It always is. And the clamor and the pace are relentless. The ubiquitous screens of our world have become emblematic of this impediment to prayer. A recent CTCR document from Synod contained a warning as follows. Children raised with a computer can develop hypertext minds. They leap around. It's as though their cognitive structure were parallel, not sequential. Digital natives may prefer interactive experiences in which they receive an immediate response to every action, but may sometimes struggle in their ability to reflect on what they know and their ability to generalize and learn from their experiences. How can we teach our children to pray? How can we pray at this pace with all those distractions and misguided expectations? We must rouse ourselves, remind ourselves, prompt ourselves to prayer. We need to recognize how different our natural environment becomes from being consciously in the presence of God and in the realm of spiritual things. We need to look to Jesus 
to show us the way. For Jesus, prayer was the natural environment, the climate in which he thrived best. He was at home in prayer, in communion with the Father. Jesus first spent time in joyous prayer with his Father, and only then did he venture out into the hostile environment of the world. For us, it's the other way around. We're comfortable, at ease in the world, and when we venture into the realm of prayer, the high altitude bothers us, and we can't wait to get our feet back on the ground. The only solution to the lack of time for prayer is to take time. I'm not saying to put down the screen and fold your hands. That's only symptomatic of the problem. I'm saying pray first. Only then are you equipped to handle it. Another tragic reason not to pray is sin and guilt. Instead of the joyous prayer of our Lord, we are overwhelmed by the opposite. Satan loves to sit down beside us and point out our every fault, our every shortcoming. You can't pray with that baggage. Get yourself right before you kneel down to pray. To this, Luther replies, Not so, my good man. If you want to be cured of sin, you must not run away from God, but you must run to him and pray more confidently. God is not hostile to sinners, but only to unbelievers. That is, to those who do not recognize and lament their sin and seek help against it from God. It all depends on that great reversal we discussed earlier. You need not lament your sin, for they have been put on Christ and buried with him in the grave, and there they lie, forgotten by God. As far from the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, from Psalm 103. You, on the other hand, have been clothed with Jesus' righteousness. Now therefore pray, with all boldness and confidence, we may ask him, as dear children ask their dear father. And so we return to Luke's introduction. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. On what does our confidence, our heart, depend? First, we have God's command to pray. In Psalm 27, the psalmist reiterates, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. And it's not just the Father. Jesus also commands that we pray. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you, from Luke 11. Command and obey are military terms, and we refer to those faithful in prayer as prayer warriors. In that context, failure to pray amounts to dereliction of duty. The threat of military jurisprudence aside, it will be a disaster if we wait until we are ready to pray. If we worry about whether we are in the mood to pray or not, if we let Satan prompt us that the time is not right, and that we should wait for a more opportune circumstance. Or if we question whether anything good will come of it. Away with such idle thoughts. Listen to Jesus' plain command and warning. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, from Mark 14. So we have God's command, but we also have God's gracious promises connected to prayer. In Psalm 50, it says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Or in Psalm 91, where it says, When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue and honor him. Remembering who it is that has promised, how can we hesitate to pray? Luther asks, Do you doubt that God has heard you? Since you are a sinner, then hold on to the word and say, Though I am sinful and unworthy, still I have the commandment of God telling me to pray and his promise that he will graciously hear me, not on account of my worthiness, but on account of the Lord Christ. Look at the widow in the text that we read. She keeps battering against this hard-hearted, selfish judge without command or promise, and she receives justice. How much more will God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay along over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Brian Lowry captures one side of this parable by comparing it to a broken record. He writes, I was born in the waning days of vinyl records. I would watch as my father pulled them from their sleeves and placed them on the turntable. When the needle dropped into the record's grooves, the speakers popped to life with a tide of white noise that was chased away by music. Some records were so worn that they hiccuped along, or even worse, repeated a section over and over again. The sound of a broken record, such are my prayers at times. The yellowed pages of my journals betray my stubborn consistency about this request or that concern. I rap on God's door, morning, noon, and night, half wishing I could blow the great house down and see some results. I call this one side of the parable. It is our side, the side of the widow. It is the side that combines our needs with the command and promise of God. But this one side would not exist, would be pointless without the other side. God's side that we hear about as Lowry continues. I often reflect on the spirited persistence of my prayers. There is a fine line between bold and bullheaded. But in my pondering, I think back on the great texts on prayer and the great prayers themselves, alongside honesty and deep worship you will most often find the quality of persistence. It seems the hiccuped repetition sound sounds from another room are music to the ears of God. He listens along with us. At times, he even sets the needle right. God set the needle right when he sent his son 